I just uh, truly want to thank all of you for, for being here today and sharing this time. I thank Carl so much for his, uh, his prayer this morning and uh, leading us in those, uh, those reflections. I'm so grateful for um, the service of remembrance and thanksgiving that we shared Thursday evening. If you haven't seen it, please, I just urge you to go and, and share in that. It takes us into each other's lives in such a, uh, a wonderful way, and it's something that, that I think is uh, just a very powerful thing. This is the, the last Sunday before we begin the, um, the period of Advent, and so next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent, and we're, we'll be looking uh, forward to that, and, and Kyle is going to lead us in our reflections uh, next Sunday, and we'll go on through. Isn't it astonishing that we are uh, this far into this year? I, I, I know it's a cliche. But it's just this deep feeling of, uh, you know, of this sort of time warp uh, that we are in as we experience this, continue to experience this, this pandemic, and then all of the things that come along that, that, uh, that, that weigh us down. Uh, we're looking this morning at, uh, at Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 42, which you heard uh, Dennis read just wonderfully for us this morning. I hope that you will have one of the, uh, the sheets that has on it uh, translation, my translation of the, that passage and some notes that I'm going to be uh, following um, this morning. And uh, it's in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, which we, we started uh, last week. We are mostly familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, and this is um, the, the the plane here is not American Airlines, it's the opposite of the mount, so to speak. It's the flat area, and that contrast is interesting in itself. Jesus has spent a whole night in prayer. He's called his disciples up to him. He's named 12 of them as, uh, as um, his emissaries, his apostles. This has come, as we talked about last week, it's come right after the, the break with... Um, Pharisees, as Pharisees have withdrawn from him and started seeking what they can do about him, as well as other expert teachers, the scribes, and so forth. And they see Jesus fundamentally as misleading the people because he's not really serious about obeying God. He's not serious, not rigorous in, in following the commands of God, in keeping the Sabbath, in regular fasting, and uh, and all of all of those things. He doesn't He's willing to touch people that have, uh, that have impurities that are not supposed to be touched. He doesn't send people to the temple for forgiveness uh, through the process of, of sacrifices and, uh, and all of the atonement there, but rather pronounces forgiveness on them. He, he actually seems, when he talks about himself as son of man, to be... <sighs> claiming that he is the inbreaking, he embodies the inbreaking of the very kingdom of God, and uh, that he has a kind of authority. That, that, that's the reason he says that he, his disciples don't fast, because they, it's like a wedding feast that's going on. And see, so he calls them to, um, to celebrate in that way. And so when these 
this break takes place between the Pharisees and the, the uh, scribes and, and Jesus. And when these apostles are named, Jesus comes down from the mountain uh, with, with his disciples into this big flat, flat area. And um, the crowds come in as they usually do with Jesus because there there's so many people that that want healing. They embody literally in themselves the suffering and brokenness of people. They want that healing. They want to experience the power. And you remember the text perhaps from last Sunday. If you if if you weren't here last Sunday, I I want to invite you to go and, and uh, listen to that uh, study of the first part of the, um, of the Sermon on the Plain. They want healing. They want to experience that power. They press in on Jesus. Others have told about it, and they want it too. But the people have also heard enough of Jesus along the way that they not only come for the healing power, they also come to listen to Jesus, as Luke tells us. And it's in that context that, as it were, Luke grabs us by the arm or the sleeve or whatever and leads us sort of through the crowds up to the inner, inner place where you could actually hear Jesus and to hear what he says because he wants us to begin understanding Jesus' Jesus' teaching, to get up close so that we can not just watch Jesus' power. We've seen that repeatedly as Luke has led us, led us through to see it. We've seen the conflicts and all of that. But we need, to, we need to hear why this has become so controversial. Why the people that, if we were part of that crowd, the people that we've listened to uh, you know, week after week as teachers of the law, people whom we respect and we know are serious, why they have broken with Jesus. We want to know how he explains himself. We'd like to hear his side of the story. We want to be fair. We've, we've heard the scribes and Pharisees, but, but we want to hear Jesus' arguments and his clarifications. But as we saw last week, Jesus doesn't start. I, I sort of think what I would have done on that Sunday. I, first thing we would have done, or that day, is we would have introduced the new leadership team that we had, the 12, and let everybody know about them and talked about the program, hope for your support as we're going forward. We're facing some struggles and difficulties and so forth, but, but with your support, everything can be successful and, and we can go forward and, and fulfilling the, 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 the challenge that God has given to us. And we hope that you'll, you'll always be here and contribute to our, to our needs and, and all of that. But Jesus doesn't explain much of anything. He doesn't argue. He doesn't tell about the break. Remember how he started the, the Sermon on the Plain? You, re, you remember the, the blessings and the woes? He can actually say, and still sound, blessed are the impoverished. Blessed are those who are hungry. Now, blessed are those who cry. Blessed are you when all humans, humans at large, hate you, exclude you, revile you. Um, I don't know about you, but the Pharisees and the, and the scribes start sounding pretty good at about that point. 
He says, woe to those who have wealth, who are filled, who are laughing. Woe to those that people speak well of. Well, I, I certainly have a sense, you know, that there's a huge disparities of wealth and everything, and it's, and uh, I don't have, I live here on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, <laughs> and one of the wealthiest zip codes, that's where this building is, and the whole United States, and, and I understand uh, how one can, can certainly, condemn the wealthy, but at the same time, as we talked about last week, uh, ah, you know, which one of us does not want to be spoken of as of good repute and, and not have our children hungry and so forth, as we talked about. So now Jesus lets us listen. I'm sorry, Luke lets us listen to Jesus. But at the same time, we recognize with Luke that it is only Jesus who knows what this moment means in the course. He, he's the only one in the whole place, barring Luke and Luke as he shows it to us, who knows where all of this is going. And so Luke, as he draws us in and, and lets us listen to Jesus, wants us to experience some of that challenge, some of that challenge that those listeners felt. Because coming down by the Sea of Galilee, if that's where it was, or some flat place there, and the people that came to Jesus, almost by definition, a huge number of them are, are people that are suffering in dramatic ways or have people in their lives that they brought because they're suffering in dramatic ways. And they, the disciples are not, you know, not the wealthy, they're the fishermen and other people like that. And so as we watch this, we're, we're listening to what Jesus has to say, and Luke wants to take us through this, this, this challenge of Jesus' teaching to grasp what, how, how we start, how we start on that road. It, it, we've just seen Jesus heal that man with the withered hand on a Sabbath day, and that's what set off the beginnings of the conspiracy to do something about Jesus that's going to lead to his crucifixion. Here, Jesus in his teaching begins the journey toward his crucifixion and its meaning. It's imp the important thing is not to, not to ponder, not to evaluate explanations and exegeses of the law. What was needed and what Jesus tries to do is not to explain himself, not to argue his case, but to open eyes to see the reality of, of God, to see God's world, God's kingdom, something that was always there, but that in Jesus now is breaking in in an astonishing way. The thing about God's kingdom is we don't, really have to understand it. It's like it's a reality. It's there. It's God. It's, it's here. It's now. It's breaking in. It's coming to light. We really don't have to understand the sun in order to live in the light of the sun. But what's important is to open 
eyes to see it. First of all, to open my own eyes to see it, to see God's reality. We're used to a world of enclosing walls of all the values that we see played out, all of the injustice that we see around us all the time, the enclosing walls of other people, the, 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 the way that we evaluate and fight each other, and that we close our eyes to the expansive reality of God. Jesus' vision, I don't know whether this is an appropriate image or not, but it's one that came to mind. It's sort of like the difference between going out into Central Park, which I love at night, and, and looking up at a clear night sky to see the stars. Let's see, you're sitting out in the, you know, in the middle of Cedar Hill or something like that. Just, I think, what, something like 20 stars or something like that. A huge number of stars that you can see, 20 or so from, from Central Park. And the difference between that and turn it going through the Hubble Space Telescope, let's say. Even that little telescope that Galileo had long ago. And seeing something else. Seeing something that humans had not seen. Recognizing that there's a reality there that has been there all the time. Or going the other direction, it's like looking if I look at my hand, oh, it's a mess, of course, but if I look at my hand, I would never know that there are cells in there. Do you know that you have something, I don't even know what the official number is, but something on the order of four trillion cells in your body. Ah, you'll never see a single one of them without something to aid your eyes in seeing more, something that's really there having an MRI that lets you look straight through your body and see its inner structures and so forth. And so what Jesus is doing here is not explaining, but trying to begin to open the eyes of people to see that kingdom of God. I want us to start from the, in our text, to start from the end, as I sometimes do, Start from the last portion of our text today, from, from chapter 6, verses 39 to, uh, to 42 there. And um, I'm, going, I'm going to be reading it uh, in my own translation, as I regularly do. Now, Jesus also told them a parable. Can a blind person really guide another blind person along a path? Won't both of them fall into a pit? One who's learning as a disciple is not beyond their teacher. But when a disciple is fully formed, each one will be like the teacher. Why do you notice the speck that's in your brother's or sister's eye, but the log that's in your own eye, that never crosses your mind? How can you say to your brother or sister, please, let, let me get out that speck that's in your eye, while you yourself don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Do you think Jesus is exaggerating a little bit? Maybe just a little, a log in, yeah, well, anyway. You're acting a role. First, get the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to get the speck that's in your, in your brother or sister's eye. 
There's just so much here. Just a brief, very brief review because we don't have time to go into all the details. Jesus, I think, here is portraying the situation of these crowds, the motley crowds, the motley disciples, as we call them last, last week, and all of us humans in general. Our guides to God and God's ways have not themselves seen the surprising, unexpected character of God's reality. They've seen religion. They've learned practices of piety. That's everywhere. We're with them. We're blind and need guidance. But our guides are also blind to what really matters. And that comes right down to me, too, as I preach this sermon. That's what's at stake in the coming of Jesus. He's not your wise sage. He's not your expert exegete or the great an analyst of religious trends or trends of ethics and justice in society. He's the one who actually knows the reality of God from the inside. He embodies that reality. <clears throat> because of that, if Jesus talks about the, the disciples learning from a teacher, it's, he's talking about how Jesus' disciples have a different relationship to him than most students and teachers. Any good teachers? And we have some good teachers on whatever level. Especially, let's think of the most advanced sort of level. If a person is a, is a really good teacher in some advanced sort of study, whether it's in science or in medicine or in archaeology or whatever it is, they hope for their teachers to go beyond them. Go further than they have seen. But with Jesus, he embodies the very presence of God, the creator who encompasses all reality. There is no beyond God. But there also in Jesus, in Jesus is this call, this invitation to us little humans to become so much more than we can imagine for ourselves, to become truly sons and daughters of one who is most high, as Jesus says in verse 35, one who is your father at the profoundest level. We need a guide who's not blind, but who sees and knows from the inside the whole reality whole of all of our reality, physical, beautiful people, everything, but also including God. Our problem, at least one of the ways that Jesus captures one of our problems, is that we're both that we both see and are blind at the same time. We're humans. We're especially sensitive to seeing and interacting with, with other humans. We're really good at, at seeing the faults of others. Uh, is that true of you? I, maybe it's just me. I don't know. I, we're good at seeing the faults of others, and especially the way that they mistreat us. But most of us are blind to our own faults. And boy, is there a lot to see in both directions. Jesus puts it so vividly. Why do you notice the speck that's in your brother or sister's eye by the log that's in your own eye? That never crosses your mind. 
Oh, yeah, I know I'm totally honest and I'm aware of my faults. Uh, we're all aware of our faults. That's the heart of blindness. We're like that classic story of the job interview, and the interviewer asked the applicant, what would you say are your biggest faults? You know the answer. We could probably all say it together. Well, my biggest faults with a totally straight face are that I work too hard and I care too much. <laughs> we can see and laugh at the blindness in others. We can realize, though, or can we, that it's us too. You don't see what you don't see. It takes Jesus to open eyes. And so as we then go back to the beginning of our text, we begin to see that Jesus reminds us of how much of our life is shaped, even controlled, by the way we see other people and interact with them. That's how we place ourselves. That's how we define ourselves. That's how we justify ourselves, defend ourselves in the world we see. We think of ourselves as actively in control of our lives while we hand over our lives to be determined by others, or do we? If family, friends, acquaintances, co-workers, those who those who are over us, uh, employers and so forth, those who are under us, who work for us, or whom we hire and pay, if they treat us well, if they treat us with equity, if they treat us with fairness, if they love us, if they value us, if they see us as successful, if they favor us, if they celebrate us, then life is good. But if they become enemies, if they hate us, if they treat us despicably, if they use their power to hurt us, take what's ours, treat us unjustly, from the smallest light to the most massive betrayal, then what? We're destroyed, maybe. Totally broken. Or, on the other hand, it's, maybe it's war, and they'll get what they just so justly deserve. In either case, our lives are so easily defined by give and take, whether good or bad. Or usually in life, of course, it's a mix of both. But still profoundly marked by our relations to others. We've all, all of us experienced this. It's our world, in our families, in our friendships, in our government, in our society, around Thanksgiving dinners and, and remembering the crippling or the empowering voices of our parents and office hierarchies and political struggles and struggles for wealth and power and all of it, all of it, all of it, and all the different forms that it takes around the, all the issues of our, of our time. That's part of what makes Jesus' teaching so striking and so challenging. He calls us to experience God's world, to step into God's kingdom, but not by explaining the advantages of such a move or explaining what the kingdom of God is as a theological concept or how it can make this life that we're living in better. He calls us to refuse 
to let our life or our choices or our actions be defined by reaction to others. And the things, of course, that Jesus first gives in, our, in the beginning of our text are, are negative, unfair, unjust things that people do. Whew. That's, 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 that's a challenge. That's really stepping into a different world that I really can't step into because I'm caught in this world, stepping in a wor into a world in which our motivations feel different and feel strange. Go back to verse 27 to 31. I'm telling you who are listening, love your enemies. Treat graciously those who hate you. This is plural you. Pronounce a blessing on those who curse you. Pray on behalf of those who treat you despicably. The one who hits you, singular, on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes your coat, don't stop them from taking your shirt too. To everyone who asks you, give. And from one who takes your things, don't ask them back. And just as you, now back to the plural, want people to do for you, do that same for them. Now we talked about a lot of this last week, and we're not going to go back into all of that. But note that in every situation, Jesus calls the disciples to be proactive, not passive, not simply receiving things. He calls them to love, to treat graciously, to give. This is not just passive suffering, being a doormat or whatever, but suffering injustice, but actively loving, taking on the responsibility of thinking about what is actually good for the other. Loving the one who considers me their enemy. There is never any reactionary response that Jesus gives. I never let my actions, if I'm following this, <laughs> even my attitudes, which can be my most basic actions, be defined by what the other person has done to me. Wow. And notice especially it's to me, to us. That's a challenge. That's a new world. Other people and what they do can't be the boundaries of my vision, my world. I've got to have a larger vision. That's where Jesus' version of the golden rule comes in here in chapter 6, verse 31. It's not the usual negative version of the golden rule that one finds everywhere. Don't do to others what you don't want done to you. <laughs> Though I have to say, that, that's a, that may be too much for me right there. I think it's too much for most people. It's, and it's a good rule. That negative golden rule is a great rule and would improve life magnificently. But Jesus says even more. Just as you want people to do for you, do that same for them. Jesus starts with the inner 
shaping and desire that's within us. What do I really, really want? As an individual, I, as a community, we. I want to be treated with respect and dignity. I want to be valued for who I am. I want to be loved. Jesus says, go into what makes you whole as a person. What God has done for you. And then proactively do that for others. Note that there's not any waiting period here. It's not waiting for them to treat me well first. I know my own vision for the best life, <laughs> that phrase, in the light of being a disciple of Jesus, and that's a very distinct marker. And I do it. I actively help people to experience that good. That's a lot more than cause no harm. This is actively participating in creating God's world, creating God's reality, God's kingdom in the experience of others. That's the way you'll see God's kingdom yourself. And then notice how Jesus presents these three parallel if questions in the text in his sermon there for our reflection. Again, reading Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 42. If you love those who love you, and here we're dealing with that you in the plural, what sort of grace is that for you? For the sinners also love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what sort of grace is that for you? Notice how he repeats himself. Jesus is clearly doing this in a pattern. The sinners also are doing the same thing. And if you lend to those from whom you're expecting to get it back, what sort of grace is that for you? Sinners are also lending to sinners in order to receive an equal amount back. An equal amount I want back with interest. No the sinners just want it back equal. They don't practice usury. Well, Jesus knows, I believe, that every one of these ifs sounds good to us. Or at least it sounds good to me. I'll just speak for myself. I love those who love me. I do good to those who treat me well. I'll lend. Yes, even to a family member, maybe in that case without interest. Generally speaking, though, I want more back if I'm lending. That's all good. That's good, Jesus said. That's the positive, pleasant side of the give and take, the reciprocity of everyday life. But it doesn't take you outside the walls of life defined by that everyday give and take and reciprocity in relationships. Those are the sinners. And that includes all of us. Those are the sinners that Jesus, you remember, said, I came to call sinners. It doesn't take you into grace. 
Now this word grace, it's the word charis, the standard translation is grace throughout the, the New Testament. But here it's used very early in Jesus' ministry and it doesn't have the weight that it does later later on. It's, it's used more in the, in the term of favor or something like that. And sometimes it's translated just downright as, you know, as a credit that you're going to, you're hoping to mark up. And, you know, God gives a check mark on your paper, so to speak, uh, with God or something like that. But it's the word grace, and it anticipates the flow of that. He uses that word for this connection with God. Luke is going through the course of the, of the whole, uh, of Luke and Acts, to watch this idea of God's grace grow and grow through this. But the goal, the center of Jesus' challenge is not in the, these if clauses. What grace is that to you? Sinners do the very same thing. The goal of Jesus' challenge to these beginning disciples is something more. Live radically into this world of love and giving and forgiving. That's how you'll learn God. Learn God's choices to be self-giving, to be merciful, to be really deeply good to us. It will begin to open your eyes and your heart to be able to take in the event that includes Jesus, all of Jesus, but especially his crucifixion and resurrection that were so hard to deal with, and the gift of life in the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 6, verses 35 to 38. Jesus says, after the ifs, rather, and he comes back to that, those phrases, love your enemies, act for the good of others, and lend expecting nothing back. Uh, isn't that just the definition of giving? Uh, when you lend expecting nothing back? Well, anyway. Jesus is wanting to be paradoxical here. And he says, your reward will be great. Who, who's going to give that to me? Uh, is God going to guarantee that they're going to pay me back more than I lent to them? What's going to happen? Am I going to get a better house because I lent $20 to somebody? What's happening? Your reward will be great. And then he says, you'll even be children of one most high. For he himself is really good toward those who are unthankful and evil. Ah, I duck when the words come at me. Become people of mercy, just as your father also is merciful. Stop judging and you won't be judged. Stop pronouncing people guilty and you won't be pronounced guilty. Pardon people freely and you'll be granted pardon. Give and give and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, spilling over the top, they'll deliver it right into your lap. For with the measure you're using to measure, it's going to be measured back to you. Notice, just for emphasis, that Jesus never rejects the idea of grace and of reward. Never. 
We know and we live that language, just like I was responding to it as I read it there. I, I want to know when, when it's going to come back to me. I want to know when the reward is. But we want it on a scale that we can control, that fits into the story that we've already got going, that reciprocal life of reaction to others is a life walked in these kinds of relationships, in a, but in a blindness to God. Stepping into the kingdom of God with Jesus offers the greatest reward. That's what Jesus said back in those blessings. You remember when he, when he was talking about people hating you and reviling you in chapter 6, verse 23. He says, be glad and jump for on that day and jump for joy. For look, your, your reward in God's realm is great. And now he repeats it. Rather, love your enemies. Act for the good of others and lend, expecting nothing back. And your reward will be great. But our problem is what we saw before. Just as we're blind to our own faults, we're also blind to who we really are as God's children and what we really can do. We limit our vision and our desires to repayment in money and services and affection or whatever here and now. Jesus knows that even Peter the fisherman or Mary Magdalene beset by demonic attacks or Levi the tax collector or even you or I he knows what we can be widen your vision you can actually find out why God most high chooses a life an existence of self-giving love a life of goodness and forgiveness and mercy. You can be a child of that one most high. We can become people of mercy as our Father is mercy. That's how you learn it. You live it. But if you really live this way, <laughs> you might think you're making yourself a patsy, I don't know, depending on the walls that surround my vision. But it also, as Jesus says, takes a big weight off your shoulders. You don't have to be the judge of the world. So Jesus can say, stop judging. Stop pronouncing people guilty. You just don't have that as your responsibility. You're a child of God, not God himself. Let God do God's work. We're, we've already learned by the story of the, of the log that we're no good as judges. Rather, learn that other side. Learn the positive. Learn, learn to pardon. Learn to give and give. That's when Jesus comes back to the reward in a kind of parable. Luke 6, 38. Give and give. It's the present tense of, of didomene in Greek to be ongoing in your giving. Give and give and it will be given to you. A good measure. Press down. 
shaken together, spilling over the top. They'll deliver it right into your lap. For with the measure you're using to measure, it's going to be measured back to you. Now he's using, obviously, the image of a basket or some sort of container of, of wheat or some other grain, something, some commodity. It's an image from the marketplace, but it's portraying something far more valuable. That good measure, pressed down, shaken together, spilling over the top, delivered into our very lap will be you, me. The you that you can't really envision yet. The you of God's power and grace and spirit working now and forever in your life. It's you drawn into the eternal life of God to experience creativity and joy and individuality and love and justice on a level that no words can express. That's where the story is going. That's why Jesus is here. That's what all the trouble and challenge is about. That's what we're invited into. Jesus says, start practicing it now. Start discovering it. It's not going to be easy. This is not something. It goes against every instinct that's been trained into you. Start discovering yourself as God knows you. The blessings begin immediately along with the challenges. It makes life wonderful and complicated and abundant. Step into the life of that one who is most high, our merciful God. Amen.